following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We're going to be working through the book of 1 Peter, and I'd ask you to turn there this morning with me. Um, And we're going to be looking at a lot of passages we're going to be reading. So if uh, you can grab a Bible and the the chair in front of you, um, and, and delve into this text that, that God has so, so richly, graciously given to us this morning. Peter chapter, well, first Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. Get this up. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us today, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, his person, his work, his sacrifice for us. And so, Lord, we just thank you that you are God who is kind is patient, who suffers long with us, and yet your holiness and justice demands demands a sacrifice, demands atonement. And so, Lord, we come to you by the blood of Jesus as your children, calling upon a Father who loves us, who knows us dearly. And so as your sheep, we, we desire to follow the shepherd because we know your voice. So, Lord, we just ask that by your Spirit's work this morning in our hearts, in our lives, that you would awaken our souls, our affections, and enrapture our lives with you today. Might we see Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, in the pages of these, these, these texts. And might you, by your Spirit's work in our hearts, conform us to the image of your Son, that we would die to ourselves today, this week, and bear our crosses in the pattern of you, and as we look forward to that day, we look forward to that day when we spend eternity with you. So Lord, help us. Help us to understand and rightly live out that this life is so short. It's so short in light of eternity. And might we live in light of your kingdom, your rule, and your reign as our Lord and King. So Lord, we just thank you so much for who you are for this body of believers, for placing us here in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Pray that we would be obedient to you and that by your gospel and by your grace, we would move forward in the mission that you have called us to, Lord. So help us, we pray. We need you, because apart from you, we are nothing. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Peter, as you understand, his disciple, apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the inner three, very intimately connected with our Savior in his earthly ministry. Peter, as you know him, is the, uh, the outspoken disciple. Often, just go ahead and open your mouth and insert both feet, Peter, type guy. The one that we know as the rock, Petros. Right? This, this disciple in Matthew chapter 16 very vividly Um, And very brazenly explains when Jesus asks, who do you think the son of man is? Who do you think I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, right? Son of the living God, unashamedly. 
But a couple verses later, you understand in Matthew 16 that Peter doesn't fully understand the ramifications of that statement. Because when Jesus goes on to explain that he must suffer, he must be killed and rise again in three days, Peter's like, no way, Lord. And he rebukes him. And so Jesus says, those daunting words, get behind me, Satan. You don't get it. You don't understand. This is not my, this is not, this is, this is, uh, what you just said is not part of my will, not part of my plan. So you, right there, shortly after, chapter 16, verse 24, it's that classic statement of true discipleship, right? Of what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a believer in Jesus. If any man comes after me, let him deny himself. That same exact word is going to be used of Peter later in chapter 26. Again, just the, the, a, 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 a heart-wrenching, a gut-wrenching experience in the life of this apostle as he ends up not denying himself, but he denies the Lord to which he pledges his allegiance to. Not only once, but three times, if you know the story. So Jesus in Matthew 16, 24 says, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And he goes on this discourse of what that looks like. What shall a man gain? What shall you profit if you gain the whole world? Everything that this world has to offer, but you lose your life. What gain is that? What profit is that? Jesus goes on to explain that it's going to be a life of following Jesus is a life of suffering. It's a life of suffering after the pattern the shape, the posture, the life of Jesus. So you understand this apostle denying his Christ three times comes back in Acts chapter 2. Via not on his own power, but the Spirit's power and stands before the people and proclaims the gospel, the authority, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And transformation happens. 3,000 people confess their sins, repent, and believe that Jesus is Lord and the church begins. Same disciple. So here we have five beautiful chapters laid out for us of what it, the Christian life is about. It's a message of salvation. It's a message of, of hope. But in that message of salvation and hope and joy, it is also a message of suffering. So Christians, believers, as we live on mission, on Christ's mission for us, we must understand that our salvation is grounded in those things. It is grounded first and foremost in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our salvation. We have to come back to it. It's that salvation that carries us through those dark, deep trial times, those, those, those the times of suffering of pain, of anguish. And it's the hope of the eternal life. Everything that we've been singing this morning emphasizes that, about the hope of Jesus Christ and the end. We know the end, all right? And so, Peter chapter one, verse three, follow along with me. The gospel is laid out here very plain, very clearly, chapters three, or verses three through 12. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The mercy, his great mercy, it's God. God is the initial mover. Don't miss that. He is the one who caused us to what? To new life, to regeneration, to be born again. And is it only for that? Is it just so that we can have salvation and have new life and go to heaven when we die and have an inheritance? To be born again? No. It's to a living hope. Okay? This hope that Peter is talking about is not this, this pie in the sky, this maybe I hope so, this just get through it and, and bear it type of hope. No, this hope is a sure hope. It is a, 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 a quiet uh, but confident demonstration that God is in control, that God's plan for us is right, is perfect. This type of hope is not simply a pious optimism, but it is a firm grasp on the true reality of the power, the rule, and the reign of Jesus. Okay? That's what this hope is. It's just not a I hope so kind of hope. Okay? It is surety. Hope, as Peter uses it, directly correlates to your behavior. Belief and hope in the gospel, in the rule and reign of Jesus, has has definite impact to the way that you live and behave and talk and think. There's no dichotomy in Peter's mind. And so he says, proper hope produces proper living. It produces proper values. It produces proper goals. Hope gives life meaning, purpose, and mission. And so we find that freedom abounds because we know the outcome and its surety. It's in the person and work of Jesus, okay? According to his great mercy, he caused us, God's the initial mover, to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So listen to this futuristic idea here that Peter's putting forth. It's just loaded. This first uh, nine verses are just loaded. Okay, to an inheritance, futuristic, who by God's power, again, are being guarded through, a f- for, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, this futuristic idea. In this you rejoice now, presently. You rejoice in it. Why? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Suffering is a huge piece, huge piece of Peter's thought. Throughout church history, people that have suffered, that have gone through extreme grief, trauma, have come back to this book to find solace and comfort. We're going to look at this key idea later on. Why are these trials occur? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of jesus christ both a present reality and a futuristic hope the revelation of jesus christ he's come but he's coming again and so you see this futuristic outlook though you have not seen him right now you don't see him you love him though 
Though you do not see, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, attaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see in verses 10, 11, and 12, two groups of individuals, prophets and angels. Prophets and angels both attest to this amazing salvation. So you see, verse number one, you see the elective purposes of God. You see it actually through that entire section. Verses three through four and five, you see this hope, a living hope. And then six through nine, you see the joy that happens in the midst of hard times, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials. And it is the foundation to which we come back to is the gospel. So concerning this salvation, the prophets see that. Verse 11, they inquired what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Do not, do not understand glorification and the glory of God apart from the sufferings of Jesus and the suffering that this life as a believer in Jesus requires. Okay? It's not just about getting to heaven. You see, salvation is not just about that. Is that a byproduct? Absolutely. But that is not just simply the gospel. As I was taught when I was a child, gospels just get to heaven. You don't have to go to hell. So Peter reminds his readers that this is the gospel. Let me back up a little bit so you get a little bit of idea of who he's talking to. These people is first century church. Christ has ascended into heaven, said he's coming back. He gave them his spirit at Pentecost. And here are these apostles living in a world ruled by Romans. Oppressive, difficult life. So much persecution so that there's this great dispersion. Diaspora, people going all across the known world, Asia Minor, scattering because they're being persecuted for their faith. These people were not citizens in the providences that they were living in. They were sojourners. They were exiles. And so they didn't have the status, the benefits, the the access to entertainment, the safeguards, the entitlements as an ethnic citizen. So he writes to these people. He writes to these people who are facing very dark times in their spiritual lives. Very dark times. And he uses this letter to call them back to the gospel by which they were called to. You read the last three verses in the book, it says, stand firm in this. This is the grace, stand firm in it. And so that is my exhortation to you today. Stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that salvation is, brings hope now. I'm sorry. But salvation brings hope now. Salvation brings joy in trials, and there's this this eschatological hope of the end is near. We also see that salvation was attested to by the prophets and the angels. So Peter reminds his readers that the life and reign of Jesus and the life of the Christian are inseparable. Okay? Absolutely, completely inseparable. Inseparable. Jesus is both the object and the pattern of our faith. In order to follow Jesus as a true disciple, one must understand both the grace 
of the gospel and the demands of the gospel. Therefore, Peter sets forth this identity, the believer's identity and the believer's responsibility as they live on mission. They're grounded in salvation. It's tempered in suffering and is elevated in eschatological hope. Salvation, as we discussed, is from God and God alone. That's it. It's his. It's not simply fire insurance, get out of hell free card, or just this massive fat inheritance that we'll get. Just says that old song says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. That's partially true. But most of that statement is bogus. It's because we look so far beyond this life that we forget completely about why we're even here. We make it just about us. It's just a bunker mentality. We close the doors to the world and don't share this amazing message to a world that's lost, that's broken. There's pain, there's suffering all around us, and we miss that part. So salvation is just as much a present reality as it is a future hope. We're going to see, look later on, that Peter's concept of salvation is more about action, more about doing than it is about speaking. It's about demonstration, not just proclamation, okay? Just because you tell someone your version of the gospel, Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven, it's not Peter's concept. It's way bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. And its implications are far more reaching than just that. So for him, salvation is not just proclamation, but it is a visual demonstration. Let's look at this. Verse 13, chapter 1. He says, because of this gospel, therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, that's work, okay? It's work to be a believer. It's not easy, but you don't do it on your own. You set your hope that surety, that firm surety fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus already comes, so he's already come, so we set our hope in him, the person, the work of Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel in which you stand, that Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. That is the gospel. It's a historical event, a time in history. Go back to that. That is your hope. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Jump down to 21, who through Jesus are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So you see this section right here in verse 13 through 20, uh, uh, 21 that, that Peter is calling them to a life of holiness. And so the big question is how? How can I be holy? This week, I wasn't so holy towards my wife, towards my kids, at my job. I wasn't so holy. How can I be? Set your hope fully on the hope. Set your mind on the hope. The gospel of Jesus. 
You see in verse 22 through chapter 2, 3, it is a call not only to holiness, but it is also a call to obedience. Having purified your souls, verse 22, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. You see how your salvation is not static? It's more than just going to heaven. Your soul is purified by your obedience to Jesus for love for one another. It's for love for one another. God saves you so that you can demonstrate his love to someone else. It's not static. Is salvation personal? Absolutely. But does it stop there? No. It does not stop there. Otherwise, it's not the full gospel. So you see a call to holiness, a call to love, and a reminder of the election of God. If you did not get it before, hear Peter now. Chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Okay? How many live, warm, fuzzy stones have you found in the last several years? Right? It's just this metaphor that's just, this is just so vivid in the mind of the apostle. Cold, dead, wet, slimy stones. And God takes them and builds them up to a spiritual house. And Jesus is the foundation. He's the cornerstone that all the stones are built upon. And there's this beautiful edifice so that, verse 9, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why are we saved? Why has salvation come to us? So that we can just enjoy the fringe benefits that God gives us in eternal life? It's so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So just as the creator God spoke light into darkness, Genesis 1, he speaks light into your life and he brings you out of the darkness and saves you despite yourself, despite myself. It's a beautiful display of the gospel. Once you were a people, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we see in this first section of chapters 1, 1, Verse chapter 2, verse 10, the gospel in its full orb view. It's about salvation, is about moving beyond yourself, getting back to the glory and the supremacy, the rule and the reign of Jesus as King, as Lord. When we misunderstand the grace and the demands of the gospels, of the gospel, when we misunderstand it, the implications are massive and the dangers are great, okay? We have currently in the American church a plague that is crippling, absolutely damning Christians in the Western church. There's a name for it. I'm going to break it down for you. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism, okay? Big, big phrase. We'll break it down. It's not very, not very complex. Moralistic therapeutic deism views our God as someone who's ready, standing there, waiting for our beckoning call, but yet is largely uninvolved in my life. He is there to meet my needs, tackle my problems, help me address an occasional issue or problem that may arise, but nothing more, nothing less. This God is helpful, 
but not demanding or overbearing. Okay? He's not suffocating. He's committed to me, but doesn't really require much commitment from me. If my happiness, my pleasure or well-being is disrupted or misdirected in any way, it must not be God's will. It just can't be God's will. Moralistic therapeutic deism teaches that basically good and moral people go to heaven. Rapists, pedophiles, thieves, liars, they, they all go to hell. Check out this quote from Christian Smith and Melissa, uh, Melinda Denton in their book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. They say this, this God is not demanding. He actually can't be because his job is to solve our problems and make people feel good. Okay? In short, God is something like a combination of divine butler, cosmic therapist. He is always on call, taking, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved. In the process, major problems. Moralism is a major problem in the American church today. Jesus doesn't want you to be a moral person. He wants you to be holy. Huge difference. Huge difference. He's not interested about morals and standards. He's interested about your heart issue. Okay? To be a moralist You are attacking the very divine grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a serious form of legalism that discredits the demands of the gospel of a righteous and of a holy God. Moralism misses the clear force of Peter's argument that God is the initial mover. It's all about rules. If I can keep this list of rules, I'm cool with God. It's not how the Bible works. That's not how Jesus' plan works. It's, we're sinners. Come to Jesus. I sinned today. How can I be a believer? Come back to Jesus. The gospel in which you stand, 1 Corinthians 15. It's this present, active, repenting and believing, right? Mark 1. Repent and believe. Why? I'm saved. Well, repent and believe. It's continual. Salvation moves into the future. Moralism. Therapist, to view God as a therapist is, makes you the center of your universe, makes me the center of my universe. You go to a therapist to help address your problems, to help address what's ailing you, to help address what's bothering your mind. Catered, God is just a casual therapist who caters to our problems as we attempt to control and master our own self-contained, self-absorbed universes. He's there to assist us in our mastery and aid us in our promotion of ourselves, our endeavor, our endeavors, our, our, our plans, our goals, our agenda, the building of our own kingdoms, our happiness, and our comfort is the focus of the divine therapist. Moralistic therapeutic deism fails to see God's story as primary and our story as secondary, right? So here's a plug for Caleb's class coming up, biblical theology, all right? If you don't understand the whole story of the Bible, you're going to miss it. From Genesis to Revelation, it's God's story. We fit into God's story. By his grace and by his design, we fit into his story. But how most American Christians live today, myself included, this battle that goes on in our minds and our souls is, my universe is this big, and somehow i got to fit God into my work week, my family, my fun. And we don't see this God as all of life, that worship is all of life. Worship isn't just Sunday morning. It is an all of life, totality of life 
your affections, your desires, your passions. And so we miss that when we view God as a therapist. Deism simply just perceives God as a divine clockmaker, winding it indifferent and aloof. Maybe step in, occasionally check on, see how things are going. The Bible doesn't at all present God as that way. So we must ask the question, what if God is more interested in our holiness than our happiness? That's from Gary Thomas. What if he's interested in your holiness more than he is your happiness? Well, that just reeks against prosperity gospel. God's there to make you happy and just to help you, and he just wants all of it. That's true, partially. But the joys and the pleasures and, the, and the, the, the warm affections come because you understand the gospel. That Jesus died for you in the place that you deserved. It has nothing to do with your kingdom, your universe. Check out this quote here. Views that God is primarily concerned with making people happy, bailing them out when they get in trouble, providing them with the necessary goods to enjoy life. Apart from these activities, God is uninvolved in the world. In other words, God is basically a nice, permissive dad with a big, fat wallet. Right? This can be boiled down to one concept. Consumerism. Consumerism is destroying the American church people. It is creeping into the church and has just dominated the lives and the minds of Christians. Case in point, we've had multiple people come to Cornerstone. Come taste and see what we're about in our life. And they leave for reasons that are just, the list goes on and on and on. We don't have a good youth program. We don't have this program. I don't like this kind of music. I don't like this style. And and it's just, you're the church. You don't go to a church to have them serve you. You come into a body of believers whenever you go, like Alonzo and Andrea, and you offer yourselves, what can I do to serve the kingdom of God in this local body? And it's completely inverted. It's just all consumerism. You see on Facebook, right, Christians all the time praying about, you know, uh, just Buy, buying, buying a, a bigger, pray that God just help me get a bigger and better house. Pray that my God would help, God would help my kids get better, great. You know, all of those things are fine. But really when the, the heart issue is boiled down, it's all about us. We want our kids to look good so that we can vicariously live through them and, and, and get them to do the things that we could never do. Or, or you know, you know, you know our, our houses, our, our, they're, they're our homes. How about a pay raise? When is the last time we Christians, American Christians, looked at our pay raise as rather than, oh, I get more money to spend on me and my stuff, rather than God's given me more money to give, to give away for the kingdom. See, we, we don't, I don't think like that. I struggle with that every day. And so just these weeks leading up to this, this has just been a, a, a beat down. And it's just, I've been running back to the gospel because my heart my heart and my flesh just, they want this. I want to consume so that I can advance. And what am I profiting if I gain the whole world and lose my life? Moralistic therapeutic deism is consumerism. It's destroying us. Destroying us. And so you see, chapter 2, verse 11, read with me. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, 
and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct. This is the mission of the believers. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify the Father on the day of visitation. Jesus, is con- uh, First Peter, is concerned with holiness on all levels. National level, societal level, family level. You see that. First one, submission to authority. Emperors, governors, honor them. Why? Verse 15, for this is the will of God that by, is it by evangelizing them, by telling them the Romans road, that preaching to them and accusing them of being sinners and all of that, that we understand? No, it's doing good works. You should put to silence the ignorant of foolish people. You see this in the societal realm. Look at slaves and masters. Be subject to you, masters. It doesn't matter whether good or kind to you. You be subject to them. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So you see this theme of doing good and despite suffering and trials? And then husbands and wives in the home. God's concerned about personal holiness in the home. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. You see how evangelism is about a lifestyle? The salvation is a totality of life, and it's more about demonstration, visible, physical demonstration, more so than it is proclamation. I'm not denying that proclamation is very much a part of the gospel. Don't get me wrong, but it's your life that proclamates. It's your actions. It's the things that you do from the inside out. So he wants them to understand this. It's about a visible witness to the world. Look at this quote by Hugh Halter in his book, Sacrilege. A visible demonstration about our uh, 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 being our verbal proclamation. When Jesus calls his, called his followers to be witnesses, I apologize this font is so small. It was bigger on mine, but when I transferred it, Got smaller. To be witnesses, he was asking them to allow their lives to tell the story of his life. He wanted their actions, their community, their values, their love, kindness, visible transformation to be the most powerful way to communicate God's heart to the world. Flip over with me to uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 3. Very clearly. Ministers of the new covenant. Believers, you are ministers of the new covenant. Get this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts. To be known and read by all. Your life is that demonstration. It's not just the words you say, but it's your life. And it's demonstrated how? And you show us that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with the ink, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Your demonstration to the world is about witness and engagement, not withdrawal and non-participation. Engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, There is an eternal difference. Matt Carter stated this. There's eternal difference between knowing about Christ and knowing him. 
huge difference. One will damn you, the other will save. I'm afraid that I struggle with this in my life, that there are days that I know too much about Christ, but I don't really know him. Philippians 3.10, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made like him in his death. We must be doers and hearers of the word. This is why Cornerstone offers core training classes. It's not about if you attend this class, you must be a super Christian. No, it's about opening the text of scripture so that you may understand and be hearers so that you may do. This is why. But why is it in churches across America that less than 50% of actual congregations attends these times where the scriptures is opened and it's taught and people learn and and, and, in hopes of transformation that the spirit will take this. This is why we have community groups. It's not social clubs. It's not support groups. It's not prayer time. It's not Bible study. They're They're groups of people who live life on mission together. Reminding each other of the gospel of Jesus Christ daily in your everyday lives. If you're not a part of one, I encourage you to be a part of one. We want you, the leadership at Cornerstone wants you to not only know Jesus Christ as your savior, but we want you to fall at the knees of Jesus as your king. Because it's about the rule and reign of Jesus in all of life. I don't have time to talk about this next quote, but it's a great one, so just take my word on that. Too often, American Christians are no different than the pagan world around them. We divorce at the same rate. We retaliate in the same vindictive and spiteful manner. We have the same addictions. We're attracted to the same forms of entertainment. When asked to identify uh, Kinnaman and Lyons in their book, Unchristian, what a new generation really thinks about Christianity, says this, when asked to identify their activities over the last 30 days, born-again Christians were just as likely to bet or gamble, to visit a pornographic website, to take something that did not belong to them, to consult a medium or a, a psychic, to physically fight or abuse someone, to have consumed enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to have used an illegal non-prescription drug, to have something, had said something to someone that was not true, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she did, and to have said mean things about another person behind their back. There's no difference. We wonder why. We can't obtain this standard of morality. You know, I have a nephew that's just struggling with this, that God's, God's standards are way too high. Well, it's because you don't understand what Jesus did for you. He did it so you didn't have to climb the ladder of morality. Not about that. So we see that suffering in this next portion is very much a part of the Christian life. Jesus is interested in you being holy. So much to the point that verse 17 of chapter 3 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good than it should be, that if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. God says it's better to suffer to be holy rather than choosing evil. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since... Christ suffered in this flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Thinking, renewing of the mind, Romans 12, 1, with the gospel. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Don't act like the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking, parties, lawless idolatry. 
With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Adults, it's different. The persecution of living a different way is, is, is a little bit more subtle. But I think for young people, teenagers, those in high school, college, this is really in your face. If you don't sleep with your girlfriend, like there's something wrong with you. You don't get wasted on weekend parties, like there's something wrong with you. If you don't wear the clothes, you don't do the smoke the pot, you don't do the things that are cool, you don't have the latest gadget, the iPhone, your parents aren't, you know, they don't let you do stuff. It's a lot more in your face. Adults, it's a little bit more subtle, a little bit more dangerous. But I think this kind of persecution is, is or this kind of suffering as a believer is very evident. One, one, one point I need to make about suffering is when the New Testament uses the word pasco for suffering in the Greek, it is never... This is argued a little bit, okay, so a little leeway here. But it is never used in physical illness, okay? So I'm not saying that physical illness, you're not suffering, but when it uses suffering in this way, it, it, it thinks of three things, okay? It thinks of three things right here. Christian's conflict with the world, identifying with Christ's sufferings, and developing Christian endurance. That is the realm of suffering, Okay? And to be honest with you, most Americans, read that insert in your bulletin about the Sudanese Christians. Most of us aren't, aren't going through that, okay? But I'm, I'm not saying that tough times and suffering and pain and grief are not applicable. I don't have time to go into that, but just trust me. It, suffering is an all-encompassing idea, okay? It's not directly in the New Testament referencing physical illness, but I think you can get there um, theologically. But that's all I can say on that. Part of the reason American Christians don't suffer is because we live in a free, comfortable America. The other part, that we're not obedient to the scriptures. Myself included. We must come back to the gospel. Come back to Jesus and worship him as our Lord and as our Savior. There cannot be, uh, Jordan taught this class on worldviews a while ago. There can't be this huge dichotomy between the spiritual and the secular. Okay? Like somehow these things are way better because they're not secular. When we create this huge dichotomy, there's, there's, there's massive implications in our life as a believer. Because then we poo-poo on the things of the world, and then we, we, just, we have this, this we reek of smug piousness, and we have no, no connection to a lost and dying world, a broken world around us. Okay? So there can't be this huge, there can't be this huge divide. Service and love requires both lips and hands. The proclamation of the kingdom of God elicits a demonstration of its realm. The spiritual and the social are melded together. Since the reign of God covers all human experience, so should the mission of his people. So should the mission of his people. So you see the book ends, chapter 5, with exhortation. Uh, 4.19, actually, look at that. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful God creator while doing good it's better to suffer while doing good than it is to choose evil but you can't do that apart from the gospel it's bondage it's moralism it's piousness so he's, he gives this exhortation in chapter five first five verses to, to church leadership don't act this way don't do this and then to everyone in verse six humble yourselves therefore Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. The reign and the rule of God 
You better get on your knees before him so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, okay? There's an often misapplied just verse that's plucked out, okay, out of its context, and it's misused and abused like that of chapter 3, verse 15 of the, apolo- the famous apologetics verse, okay? This verse in particular is talking about people posting, you know, prayer requests about helping their cat to be better and all of this stuff. That's fine as long as you tie it to the kingdom of God. Okay? As long as you tie it to the kingdom of God. Just not, uh, we can't have this bunker mentality. We must stop demonizing the unbelievers around us and stop our smug, false piety that makes them glad they're not Christians. 4% of all the kids out there, statistics, if they're proven right, 4% will be the only ones who profess Jesus Christ as an adult in the U.S. That's a whole lot of kids. That's a whole lot of unbelievers. Parents, we have a massive responsibility in the four corners of our home to make disciples, to demonstrate that Jesus is king and ruler over mommy and daddy's lives, over mommy and daddy's checkbook, over mommy and daddy's ideals and plans and goals we have to do that to our kids otherwise they're just consumers we're teaching them to be consumers check out this quote here wrapping up kingdom people seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and his justice church people often put the church above the concerns of justice mercy and truth Why do we have all these parachurch ministries? Because the church isn't doing their job. (laughs) We are failing. And so other people are caring for the poor, feeding the poor, caring for the sick, the widows, the orphans. Church people think about how to get people into church. It's about attendance. It's about numbers. It's about programs. It's about this and that. Because this is our concept of church is an event. But kingdom people think about how to get the church into the world. Church people worry that the world might change the church, but kingdom people work to see the church change the world. How? Because the gospel is real and it's powerful. That's how. Do we believe that? Is our lives just, are they saturated that by that? Can't be just a support group. Can't be just a Bible study as a church here in Hampton Road. We have a broken world around us, and are we reaching them? Some of you in here have suffered greatly. You faced immense pain, psychological, physical, grief. Some of you, you, some of you, if you have not already, will bury your child. Someone, some of you will just lose someone close. Some of you have lost your job, or will lose your job, and there's just no like. How do you get to? see the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, God's story and my story fits in there because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And when I was dead, he called me out of darkness and awakened my soul so that I understand grace and mercy and he saved me. That's how. I don't know the future of of, of my life here. I don't know what the events are going to lay out for me, but I trust, I rest in the hope of Jesus. Trust and rest in the hope of Jesus. Turn over with me to 1 Thessalonians and we're done. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, chapter 1, sorry. Verse 2. This is very 
Peter-esque, Paul writes here. Same things that we're talking about. We give thanks to God always for all you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering our God and Father for your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. It's about doing. It's about hoping. It's not about you trying to beat someone in the face with your view of who God is. It's about your life. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, election, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. For we know what kind of men you proved to be among, for, among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord and received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you, be, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So that's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for us, is that we would just, in in, in deep trials, that we would come around each other and demonstrate the love of Christ to one another. For those that are stay-at-home moms and you just have three feet down, that's your whole world. That's it. That's all you know. You would have other like-minded moms and moms that have walked through that stage to come and love you, encourage you, and bring the text of Scripture alive to your you're tired, you're just wasted at heart, and you just physically, I can't take another day of these three-year-olds. You know, that's the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So may it change us and transform us in the midst of pain and suffering. Might we have much joy. Serving Christ must be joyful. And if it's not, you've got to ask why. Okay? We have people in our congregation that, have come to faith in Jesus Christ and have just been radically transformed. Just amazing how people like Mark and Jen and Mike and Andrea and their families come into Cornerstone and just have a, a completely just different way of life. And then they come and all of a sudden they're, they, they start seeing that, you know, the gospel of Jesus is about a life. It's commitment. It's like, it's following a Savior who loved, and, and, and they join in. And they believe, and they trust, and they wrestle, and they challenge us who've been believers for years, since children. And they demonstrate the gospel power in their lives before us for all to see. So this is the gospel. Jesus died. His resurrection power now lives in you by his spirit. There's going to be hard times coming. Rest in the hope. The eternal hope, the future is secure. It is your faith, it is your life, it is your eternity. Father, thank you for your love for us today. Pray that you would just do a work in our hearts. Let us go forth and just love the world around us. Do it in our everyday rhythms of life. Might you be honored and glorified in everything we do.